Now tonight, we're going to talk about the death of Christ, and we're going to read this count from the, the Gospel of Mark. Over the last few week, uh, years when we've had this service, we've walked through different books. We did Luke the first year. We had our Good Friday service, Matthew, last year. And tonight, I want us to read the story from the Gospel of Mark. Hopefully, you're there in your Bible, Mark chapter 15. And I want us to start actually at the end of the story, because I want us to keep in mind something incredible that is said that explains to us the importance of what it is that took place. Here at the end of Mark 15, immediately after the darkest, the darkest moment in human history, the most terrible thing that could ever have taken place, we read of a confession that echoes down throughout the ages from the lips of one of the men who is actually responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross. It's a confession that resonates throughout time and comes today even from the lips of Christians in this place who would make the same confession. Mark 15, 39, we read, When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in, the way, in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Picture that in your mind for a moment. This soldier standing there in, in unusual darkness this afternoon, looking up at a broken, bloody body hanging shamefully on a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem, suddenly understands the most powerful truth, the most important and impactful thing that anyone can ever come to realize. Hanging on that cross was no mere man. What had just taken place was no common death. The death of Jesus was the death of the Son of God himself. This is the truth that I want us to see clearly tonight as we hear these events that lead up to that moment and that confession that truly this was the Son of God. If you go back just a page to Mark chapter 14, we'll enter the story on Thursday night. After Jesus and his followers have celebrated the Passover meal, we read in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 28. Now they had sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, these words from the mouth of Jesus were incredibly hard for the disciples to hear and accept. These men had been with Jesus for years, learning from him, serving him, traveling all around Israel with him, seeing him perform miracles, hearing him teach great crowds. These men could not believe the words of Jesus that night, that their master would be taken away from him. And even harder for them to accept was what he said would be true of them that they would fall away. They would abandon him, betray him, deny him. The disciples could not see and did not want to admit how weak they were. So they respond to Jesus. In the next few verses, Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter emphatically said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the other disciples all said the same. Now, the confidence of these men, especially Peter who first vocalizes, it touches, I think, on an important point that each of us can relate to today. We often think that we possess much greater strength than we really do. 
You and I are like the disciples here. We think we are able to accomplish more, to conquer more, to overcome more than we really can. We delude ourselves into believing that we have all the power and all the ability that we need. We just need to apply ourselves. We just need to have a strong enough resolution. Our will just needs to be built up. We need the right tools and techniques, and we can do whatever we put our minds to. But the reality is, like the disciples, we are weak. We are unable in ourselves to do what is good and right. But the reality is, we're not the heroes of the story. We're those the hero has come to rescue. We're the people who are weak. We're the people who are incapable. We're the ones who need someone better than us to come and deliver us. We aren't the heroes ourselves, but we like to think we are. Peter, that night, says, I will be faithful. I will be strong. I will face down death. My resolve, my will, they're up to the task. Everyone else may fail, but, but not me. Even if no one else could do it, I will. But Jesus' words that night were not the words of just a mere man. These are the words of the one who knows all things because he is the God who created all things. So he's the one who knows us, every single one of us, fully. He sees all of our weaknesses, and he is much more honest about them than we often are. So just as Jesus said would happen, the weakness of every one of these disciples will be seen very shortly that night. Before even a few hours have passed, before any real difficulties come that evening, before there's any real threat to their lives, the disciples demonstrate that their well-intentioned resolutions and their strong words of commitment, they fall short because they really are much, much weaker than they want to admit. So the group, Jesus and his disciples that night, go to a place called Gethsemane. A garden area where Jesus liked to go and pray near Jerusalem. And that's why he went there that night, knowing what lie ahead of him, feeling the weight of what he was about to do. He wanted to pray, and he asked his disciples, these men who had made such strong statements to him just moments before this, for a simple favor to come with him to the garden to keep watch and to pray. Jesus' request as they go into Gethsemane isn't a request for them to risk their lives here. He isn't asking them to face down deaths in these moments. He's asking them something very simple and very clear. It doesn't take supernatural levels of strength. And yet the disciples prove they are too weak to do even this simple thing. They fall asleep in the garden. Not just one time. Not just dozed off a little Three times the disciples fall asleep, and three times Jesus must come to them and wake them up. In verses 41 and 42, we read, So when Jesus came the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, for the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, for see, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus knew as he went to the garden that very night exactly what was coming. And he had asked his friends, these ones who said, no matter the cost, Jesus, we, we will be strong enough. We will stand with you. We will endure by your side. He said, simply come with me and pray. And yet their weakness overwhelmed their resolve mere hours after their brave words. These disciples fall asleep. In their weakness, while Jesus is there demonstrating the strength of his commitment to fulfilling 
the eternal plan of God. Again, touching on us as we connect with the disciples this evening, this is the danger for so many of us still today, to fall asleep when we should be alert. It's what happens when we try to live this life in our own strength, to think that we can handle things in our own power. The disciples thought we are strong enough as they went into the Garden of Gethsemane that night, but instead they only proved their weakness. Tonight, we need to be honest about our weaknesses. We need to admit our inabilities. We need to be honest about our failings to realize all of us in this room are not strong enough to earn the love of God, to make up for our sins, or to be the people that God has commanded us to be. Listen, these events that we're going to look at on Good Friday reveal our weakness and point us to look to the only one who has true strength. The disciples, having already been too weak to simply stay alert and pray with Jesus in this garden, now are too weak to even stay with him physically when things get tough, just as he said would happen. Verses 43 to 46 in chapter 14 still tell us, And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one that I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him, and they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. And verse 50 tells us, And they, the disciples, all left him and fled. As that crowd that came with Judas now leaves with Jesus arrested, the disciples all scatter and run away, too weak to remain, just as Jesus had said would come to pass. Having seen clearly in this part of the story the weakness of the disciples, and I hope if you're being honest with yourself, recognizing and realizing internally your own weakness as well, We call it Good Friday because of the contrast of what takes place in the rest of the story. Where there is such weakness in the part of the disciples, where there is such weakness in us, we turn now to see the perfect and unfailing strength of Jesus in all that comes to pass. Mark tells us in verse 53, this group led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. This group that Jesus is before of these religious leaders set up what is truly just a mock trial. In the next few verses, it's explained to us that the leaders were determined already that they were going to find a way to kill Jesus. These trials were simply a pretext to accomplishing this goal. They brought out false witnesses. They accused him of crimes he had never committed, and they twisted his words trying to find any possible reason to justify their desire to kill him. But in the midst of all of this, we read in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst of them and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This response of Jesus should not be overlooked by us. 
It was a response that was plain to those that he spoke to that night. The religious leaders understood perfectly that when Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, and he is the one who will be seated at the right hand of power and will come on the clouds from heaven, that Jesus was referring to the prophetic passage in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. What Jesus is saying, what the religious leaders understood Jesus was saying that night is that he himself is the God who Daniel prophesied would come and bring righteous judgment from heaven one day. So even though Jesus is standing there that night, having been secretly arrested, put through this mockery of a trial, he is being judged by these unrighteous, ungodly men. He's telling them in this statement that he himself is the true judge of all mankind, and they one day will stand before him to answer for all their sins. These people think in this moment that they have power, they have strength. They think Jesus is weak and helpless, and whatever they decide will surely seal his fate. But the reality is, Jesus says, I am the one with all power. I am the one who is truly strong. But despite hearing this clear testimony from Jesus' lips that night in response to this question, these religious leaders hate him so much, they want so strongly not to believe that he is who he has been saying that he is, that they send him off to Pilate, hoping Pilate will, this Roman ruler, agree to kill Jesus and order an execution. Pilate sends him to Herod, another ruler, to get his opinion on the matter. And Herod sends him back to Pilate to make a final decision. Because neither Pilate nor Herod, in those trials, find any good legal reason to kill Jesus. There's nothing in Jesus worthy of death that they can find. So Pilate thinks, perhaps it's just these religious leaders. And not necessarily the people who want to see Jesus killed. So Mark tells us in chapter 15, verses 6 through 10, that at the feast that was taking place, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom the people asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in an insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So when the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, Jesus? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered Jesus up to him. Pilate understood the hearts of those religious leaders better than they did themselves. He saw it was envy on their part. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity, of his reputation, of the works and teachings that he had done. That It all led to the religious leaders hating Jesus. But, but Pilate knew that the crowds had felt very different about Jesus. Just days before this, the Sunday before this, there was crowds gathered outside of Jerusalem cheering as Jesus came into the city, proclaiming him blessed, saying he was a prophet from God, celebrating and worshiping and praising. There was great excitement over who Jesus was from the crowds just days before. But the weakness of those people that very night I think some of those people surely had to have been in the crowd that previous Sunday. It surprises even Pilate. As we read in verse 11, the chief priests went out and stirred up the crowds to have Pilate release for them Barabbas, a murderer, instead of Jesus. So Pilate said again to them, then what shall I do with this man that you call king of the Jews? 
they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released to them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed Jesus in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck his head with a reed and spit on him and kneeled down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes back on him and let him out to crucify him. While the betrayal and the weakness of the crowds who had just days before celebrated Jesus as he arrived in that city, it's shocking to hear what they yell that night, seeing what takes place in the turn of just a few days. But from these soldiers, these Roman soldiers here, this is pretty much what we would expect. They would mock and beat and torture Jesus, call him king of the Jews because they didn't believe for a moment that he was a king, much less that he was God in the flesh. So that confession of the centurion that we read at the beginning of this service this evening is really more shocking and unexpected when you realize that right here in this moment, he is part of this battalion that has gathered together. That soldier, that man was there, one of the ones mocking and beating and then leading Jesus out to his death. And yet what he sees in Jesus through all of that, how Jesus responds, begins to change this man. Jesus endured with true strength and resolve all that was done to him. Never once did Jesus in the midst of this respond with anger. He did not plead with them to make it stop. He did not protest. He did not proclaim his innocence and how unfair this whole situation was, though he truly was innocent and it really was unfair. Instead, Jesus took the beatings heard all of the mockery and the scorn, received all the hatred being directed towards him, and he remained strong and silent in the midst of it all. When the soldiers lead him out, they take him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And the Roman soldiers who mocked him and beat him had done that so severely that his body was already so broken and bloody and weak that he could not carry his own cross up the hillside. So the soldiers take a man named Simon from Cyrene and force him to carry the cross for Jesus. He takes it to the top of the hill. They lay it down. They push Jesus' body onto it, hold his arms as they drive nails through his hands and his feet, fastening him to that rough wooden cross and lift him up into the air at nine o'clock in the morning that Friday. Every year when we come to this moment at Good Friday, I, I think it's important for us to slow down and to think accurately and to feel the weight of what the cross was really like that day. Like I said to the kids, we have crosses all over the place as Christians today. 
We wear them on t-shirts. We have them on the cover of books and Bibles. They're hanging on the walls of our homes. But the means of execution on a cross was a brutal form of execution. Crucifixion was designed to be torture for the one that was being killed. It was designed to instill fear and suppress defiance in those who witnessed a death in this manner. The pain and the suffering of going through a crucifixion was actually so great that a new word had to be developed. The word excruciating literally means that which is experienced on a cross because no other word could describe the torment of death in this manner. The pain of having nails, and not small ones like this, large enough nails that they could support the entire weight of a person hanging from their arms on a cross, those being driven through the hand, likely near the wrist, because honestly, to drive it through here, where we most often think of it, wouldn't support the weight of the body. The flesh and the tendons would rip, and they'd fall off the cross. So knowing that, you would drive it here, through the bone, to hold the body to the cross. The soldiers that would put him onto the cross would do so while it laid on the ground, and then lift the cross up, drop it into a hole. So with his arms outstretched, the entire weight of his body is being drawn down. His chest would be compressed It would be difficult to breathe. Feeling the pain in your wrist, the only way to take a breath would be to pull yourself up. Feeling agony in your arms just to get a breath into your lungs. And remember, when Jesus was hung on the cross that night, he had already been beaten so severely that he could barely make it up the hill himself. He'd endured a form of beating that often was a means of execution. People typically died with the beating that Jesus had already endured. That's how severe his lashings were. So hanging upon a cross there that night looked like the ultimate display of weakness to all who saw it. And in fact, that's what it is. A picture of weakness, but not the weakness of Jesus, of our weakness. No matter how hard you and I try, no matter how much strength we exert, that is what we deserve. Our sins are so serious, our sins are so numerous that we should be the ones suffering and dying as the consequence of what we have done. No matter how good you try to be, The end is all the same. But Jesus had done nothing to deserve it. He truly did not deserve what was happening to him that night. But he had willingly gone to that moment, through all the betrayal, all the suffering, all the pain of a crucifixion, enduring all of that to accomplish a mission, a purpose. Something that only he could do as God in the flesh. Only he had the strength to see through. Not a single one of us, no matter how smart we are, how educated we are, how skilled we may be, how physically strong we may find ourselves, not a single one of us could accomplish what Jesus did. Because Jesus did not just die. 
He died for a divine purpose. He was not giving his life that night because there was some fault in him. He was dying in the place of, as a substitute for his people, who were all too weak, too sinful, and without any hope in themselves. Jesus was not on the cross because of his weakness. He was on the cross because of ours. So Jesus hangs there from nine o'clock in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon, experiencing this physical agony, enduring the mockery of the crowds for six hours. And then he quotes these words from the first verses of Psalm 22 as he feels the full divine wrath towards sin placed upon him by the Father as the substitutionary sacrifice of atonement for God's people. In verse 34, we read, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus utter those words? Why would he say these first few words from Psalm 22? Because hanging there, Jesus was forsaken so that his people could be accepted. He was suffering on that cross so that his people could be saved. He cites Psalm 22 because it ends with a promise that indeed he is the righteous one. His act is one of bringing salvation. And that act, Psalm 22 promises, will be declared to future generations just as it is being fulfilled right now, all these years later. And then Mark brings us to the point where we started this evening. Mark 15, verses 37 to 39. And then Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, died to deliver his people and free us from the price of our sins. From the Apostle John's account of this event, in chapter 19, verse 30, he tells us what that final word, that loud cry that Jesus uttered right before his death was. From John, we learn that it was the most beautiful word, one single word in Greek, three words in English, the most beautiful words imaginable for his people to hear him say. While he hung upon that cross, as he died, Jesus declared, to Telestai, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was the reason that Jesus had come. This was the mission that he had come to accomplish, planned from eternity past by the triune God. Jesus came to do what only he had the strength and the ability to do, to die as the perfect substitute, paying the full price of the sins of all of his people so that today we could be saved, delivered, and forever fully forgiven. This evening, as I said before, is not about telling you 
what you now need to do in order to earn salvation. This evening is not about telling you there's good news. You have the strength. You just need to apply this technique. Here are the steps you now need to accomplish. Tonight, as we recount these events of that Friday, is to tell you you are too weak to save yourself. You do not have the ability You cannot repay God for the sins that you have committed. You are not strong enough to be perfect from this moment forward in your life. What you deserve because of your sins is death and everlasting judgment. Hear me. You are not now, nor will you ever be able to save yourself. But the main point of this evening is this. Don't miss this. The events of Good Friday tell us that we are too weak, but Jesus Christ has conquered sin in his great strength. That's why for us it is a Good Friday to witness the murder of the Son of God is not a good day. To see a man beaten and bloody and hanging on a cross like that has no good value in it at all. What makes this day good is that he, in his strength, did what we in our weakness never could. So there's only one real right response to the events of Good Friday and the death of Jesus Christ. The only response that we should have, the response that we want to have tonight is to believe in him and confess what the soldier that we started with confessed, that Jesus truly is the son of God. Today we must admit our weaknesses and trust fully in his strength to save us. The most famous verse in all of the Bible today, and then I, I'm pretty confident, though, no matter your church background, you've almost certainly heard this one. It tells us boldly in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should have, not perish, but have eternal life. This was the whole point of Good Friday, the whole point of the cross, that this work being accomplished by Jesus Christ results in a gift, the gift of eternal life, not for those who earn it by their efforts, not for those who are strong enough, but for those who simply believe in him, have faith in him, trust in him to do in his strength what we in our weakness never could. I'm sure that you've heard those verses before, but maybe you haven't ever heard the verses that follow They're not quite as well known. This is what verses 17 to 21 tell us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. But people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So this is the invitation for us tonight. All of us have come into this room tonight having done wicked things, what the Bible calls sins. And the natural response is to try and stay hidden in the darkness, 
thinking that there in the darkness our sins won't, won't be seen. The people around us won't know how bad we really are. We can maintain an image that we're good enough if we just remain quiet and we just stay in the darkness. But Jesus Christ has come as the true light. And it is only by coming to him, believing in him, trusting in him, submitting to and following him, that you can have true life. So if you do not confess what the soldier did, not just by saying those words, but by believing that they are true, Jesus is the Son of God who died to save and deliver his people from their sins. Then hear me, no matter what image you have put on, no matter how good people around you may think that you are, no matter how strong you think you are and how good you try to appear, you are condemned by your sins apart from relying on the strength of Christ. There's only one way to salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus and trust that his death will give you life. So we're going to take the next few moments to think about these things, to reflect on the cross and the accomplished work of Jesus. And in these moments now, these altars will be open for us to respond tonight. And if you've you need to tonight come to the, to the light of Christ for the first time. You've, you've never confessed your sin. You've never asked him to be your savior. Then this is certainly an invitation to you. Hiding in the darkness is futile. You need a savior. And today, he stands ready to receive you. So I would love nothing more than to pray with you or to answer questions that you might have or explain anything that you don't understand. Choir, if you'll come and prepare to lead us in our first song this evening. This invitation is not just for those who may need to receive salvation for the first time, but if you're already a Christian who this evening, as you've heard and thought more about the cross and, and realized perhaps that it's so real that it makes no sense for you to try and hide anything, to, like the disciples did at the beginning, try and pretend that you're stronger and better than you really are to try and control things that you're too weak to handle. If this evening you just want to come into these altars to pray, to, to worship, to respond to the Lord in some way, then know that these altars are open for anyone and everyone to come. So for these next few minutes, 10 to 12 minutes as we sing these three, we're going to make this place a place of worship in response to Jesus and what he has done. Would you stand with us this evening as we prepare to sing? We picked up the story tonight as Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and then into that garden called Gethsemane to pray. He did all of that after having celebrated the Passover meal and instituted for us an act of remembrance to continue down throughout the ages. So for those of us who are, are Christians, you don't need to be a member of this church in particular to take communion with us tonight, but you do need to understand what we're doing here. The things that we're about to partake of are not transformed elements. There's, there's no ritual that could make this bread and bit of juice anything other than bread and juice. What we're about to do is, is eat and drink together symbols that were used by Jesus on that night that he was betrayed and led off to his death. Things he set up for us to be tangible, physical illustrations to point us to and remind us of the meaning of what he was doing on that cross. 
So if you're not a Christian here tonight, you don't understand the meaning of what we're doing as we partake of these things, if, if you don't believe in, in Jesus' death as your hope for salvation, then, then just let these things go by you. Taking these two items and eating them and drinking them apart from having real and genuine faith in Christ, it won't do you any good. It's just another sin that you would incur that one day you will pay for when you stand before Jesus. God doesn't look on us tonight taking the bread and drinking the juice and grant mercy or forgiveness to us because of that. The only way anyone can be saved is by trusting in what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. That it was his death in our place as our substitute that brings salvation to us. Jason and Craig, if you'll come this evening, they're going to assist in serving us. And the trays will be brought around to us tonight. So Christians, just take one stack of, of cups and hold them in your hand. The bread's in your bottom cup. The juice is in the top one. And these symbols are for us tonight to point us towards what we have heard in this gospel message. That God the Son took on human flesh died in the place of sinners, and these items are to push us towards faith in him, not in these objects, not in the ritual, or into anything else. As we're being served tonight, I've asked Morgan and Tyler if they would sing the first few, few verses of a, of a beautiful hymn and give us the chance to prayerfully reflect on the strength of Jesus and what he accomplished on that cross. We'll sing tonight verses one to three of the song, Come, Behold, the wondrous mystery. These items that we hold in our hands tonight have their true significance as shadows that point us back to the reality of what Jesus did on that cross that Friday. They point us to the meaning of why Jesus endured all the suffering, all the pain, why he went to that death. The words of Jesus as he instituted this as a means of reflection and explanation, tell us in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, that Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said to them, take, this is my body. This little bit of unleavened bread in your hand is tonight for us a symbol of a body that was broken for his people that Jesus came in real physical flesh like ours. And on that Friday, he was beaten and bruised and broken and ultimately killed because of our sins. The suffering and the pain that he endured upon that cross should never be forgotten by his people. But it is because of the spiritual work that he in his strength accomplished in taking our sins upon himself that we can partake of this as good news for us today. Let's take and eat the bread together tonight. And then Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to the disciples, and they drank. He said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. As I said tonight, the cross where Jesus hung was a bloody place. His life was poured out on that cross because that's how serious our sins are. Every sin, from the littlest ones we can think of, the smallest lies, to the harboring of hatred, to being unsubmissive and rebellious, every sin that we commit deserves death. 
And it is only through the shedding of blood that forgiveness could come to us. So Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life, shed his blood that you and I could be forgiven and adopted into his family, treated as sons and daughters, heirs of eternal life and grace. His blood was spilt to pay our debt, to absorb the wrath we deserve. So let's take and drink this evening in remembrance of him. Now the story of Jesus' work is not over. The events of Good Friday end with Jesus having died. He's buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And his followers on that night are mourning and weeping at his death. Yet Jesus had made a prophetic promise when he had spoken back on the Mount of Olives about the betrayal that would happen that night. The text we started with in Mark 14, we read where Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The story is not over with the death of Jesus because as he told his disciples, though they would be weak and they would fail that very night, he himself was not a failure and his death would not be a sign of his weakness. He would rise again. So would you stand with us together this evening? We're going to sing a chorus of hope, the fourth verse of this song that Morgan and Tyler have led for us. The words will be on the screen behind us and you've heard the melody as he's played it tonight. In verse 3, it says, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Now would you lift your voices and sing a foretaste of what Sunday is all about. In verse 4, of Come behold the wondrous mystery. So once again, I'll invite you to come back and invite friends to join us on Sunday morning as we celebrate the rest of this story. Jesus accomplished in his strength what only he could, and he has won the victory. Let me pray over you as we go this evening. Lord, we're so grateful for the chance to come together. And and though it's somber and serious to reflect upon your death, the price that you paid, Lord, we leave here tonight with deep gratitude for it. We leave here thankful that though we are weak, you are strong. We leave here so grateful that you have promised to save all who would trust in your death, your sacrifice on our behalf. And we pray tonight to you, not as just a crucified Savior, but the risen Lord. We thank you that you are alive. Lord, I pray as we leave this place, we do so with great joy in our hearts, with great excitement to invite others to come and celebrate with us what you have done, that the grave is empty, that all your promises are true. We pray to you, our risen, conquering Savior, in your beautiful, strong, and powerful name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.